0: This is a podcast by The Straits Times.
1: Welcome to Green Pulse, a podcast series by The Straits Times where we analyse the beats of the changing environment, from biodiversity conservation to climate change. I'm your host Audrey Tan and I cover science and environment for The Straits Times. My co-host is David Fogarty.
2: Hi, I'm David and I'm the Climate Change Editor at The Straits Times. It's the 27th of June. Today, we're discussing how the power of the law has become an increasingly effective tool to drive climate action. Climate litigation cases are growing rapidly and targets include global energy giants, airlines, and governments. One group that is holding polluting governments and companies to account is global charity, Client Earth, which specializes in using legal challenges to drive change. Joining us today to discuss this is Mr. Sean Seng, a legal consultant for Client Earth and an adjunct research fellow at the Asia Pacific Centre for Environmental Law in Singapore. So, welcome to the show, Sean. Thanks for having me, David, Audrey. Uh, it's good to be
0: here.
1: So, Sean, could you tell us a bit more about climate litigation and the work that Client Earth does?
0: Sure. Um, so, litigation—what what is that? that? That's really the process of taking adversarial legal action. Uh, climate litigation is using that legal action to pursue uh, climate objectives to hopefully address the risks associated with climate change. Uh, when we talk about those risks, we're really talking about physical risks and transition risks. Uh, now, some might say that that those risks are prospective. Those risks are happening in the future. Um, climate litigation is a way to materialize those physical and transition risks today. So a litigant might say... Um, your emissions are damaging my right to live in a healthy environment for the remainder of my life. Uh, stop your emissions today and, and prevent that that future damage from from occurring. So, climate litigation has the ability to essentially bring forward time horizons uh, to materialize uh, risks now, um, and 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 therefore, you know, climate litigation is and, and will continue to be uh, an effective tool. Uh, but it's not the only legal strategy that we have in the toolbox, and I think that that's important to bear in mind. So I think that brings me nicely to to the work that Client Earth does. Um, at its heart, uh, Client Earth is an environmental NGO, uh, but unlike most other NGOs, we use the law, um, and we work across the full cycle of the law. Uh, and what do we mean by that? Uh, we involve ourselves in in policy and, and legislative processes. Uh, We seek to understand and develop laws uh, such such as corporate and financial laws as they relate to climate change. Um, And we do that through implementation and enforcement. Uh, And we also seek to train um, legal and judicial professionals. So climate litigation is a small part of that. But um, as a trend, it is growing uh, as a phenomenon, as the urgency of climate change continues to become more pressing.
1: So out of all the cases on climate change that have gone to court so far, are most of them against governments or companies?
0: If you look back historically or, or cumulatively, you'll still see that more are against governments, but that landscape seems to be shifting uh, towards corporate liability, particularly in the last two to three years. Now, a prime example of that is the seminal case of, of Milio, Defensi and Shell, taken out at The Hague, where, where Shell was ordered to reduce its company-wide emissions by 45% by 2030. Now, never before have you really had a corporation held liable for climate change in that way. That's it. that's symptomatic of a growing recognition uh, that companies have a major role to play in determining whether we manage to reach our 1.5 degree target or not. So, looking forward, I won't be surprised if, if you see if you start to see an uptick of cases um, as against corporations, um, and we are in fact already starting to to see that trend.
1: So, you mentioned the case about a case involving Shell being asked to cut their emissions, but is that the thrust of most other cases in terms of climate litigation? Like, are we also seeing uh, lawsuits being leveled against parties because of greenwashing or plastic or any other major issues?
0: No, absolutely. You absolutely are. Um, you know, when we talk about climate litigation, and perhaps we'll before we jump into the meat of this era, uh, you know, small conceptual point, which I think could be useful to clarify, and many people get this confused, but, but I think this presents an o- opportunity that we can improve the environmental literacy of our listeners. We need to be careful that we don't lump plastic pollution together with climate issues. Uh, plastic pollution is an important issue, and it's going to become even more important as time goes on. But that's more concerned with issues of, you know, impacts to marine life and even um, human health. Uh, when you talk about climate litigation, you're really talking about the litigation related to how um, greenhouse gas emissions are impacting climate and, and, and warming the planet. But, but you're absolutely right that, that um, you know, insofar as climate litigation is concerned, it's not confined to just um, the reduction of GHG emissions. You mentioned greenwashing. That's a really big one. Um, With the growing concern around climate change, you'll find that more firms are going to want to portray themselves as green uh, when they may not necessarily be green or have concrete plans to become green. And that's potentially dangerous and and counterproductive to overall efforts uh, to genuinely decarbonize. So when we think of climate enforcement action, we are not just looking at private litigants in court uh, going up against a carbon major. Uh, we have to consider public enforcement action as well um, that tackle issues like greenwashing. There's been a recent spate of enforcement action taken by um, the securities regulator in the US, the SEC, uh, against financial institutions, uh, BNY, Mellon, Deutsche Bank, um, and I now believe Goldman Sachs is, is in the crosshairs. Um, so we have to consider that, you know, apart from these private litigants, regulatory scrutiny surrounding climate change issues like greenwashing are also going to be potential sources of liability exposure.
2: So globally, there are nearly 2,000 climate litigation cases uh, that have been filed to date, and that number seems to be growing quite quickly. The cumulative number of climate change-related cases has more than doubled since 2015. So why is that happening, and where have most of these cases been filed?
0: Yeah, that's a really big question, David, and and, and there are probably multifaceted reasons for that. But I'll I'll address one, and we might have alluded to this earlier. But at a broad level, it is really this growing urgency surrounding climate change uh, and and the growing recognition that we need to do something about it. Uh, The physical impacts are already being felt in in various parts of the world. What what really has people sitting up is the prospect that they stand to lose a lot of money uh, in this crisis because climate change is becoming... Uh, a serious and tangible financial risk. Um, if companies continue business as usual, they, they risk being irresponsible to their investors and, and other stakeholders. Uh, you had a new study come out recently estimating that oil and gas assets may be overvalued and stranded to the tune of about one trillion US um, dollars. And, and who owns that risk? Who, who exposed to that risk? Uh, a whole variety of stakeholders. And that creates an impetus for these stakeholders to, to get these companies to do better. Um, so being proactive to guard yourself um, and, and whether physically or financially from those risks is a large reason for the turn to climate litigation. As to where they're filed, now most of these cases are still being filed in, in places where perhaps um, these risks are more well-known, You know, places where access to justice is quite high. So you're looking at places in like, the US with a fair number in the UK and EU and a fair number in Australia as well. Uh, but you will find that there's a growing number in Asia.
1: Are they being felt on the basis of environmental damage or something else? Because not all countries may have laws to protect the environment, right?
0: Yeah, you're going to see a, a variety of strategies across the board and depending on which um, jurisdiction you're looking at, now, it's, it's probably impossible for me to run through the entire litany of, of legal strategies and bases that, that these uh, litigants use. Uh, but for just one example, if you look at South Asia, places like India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, there has a tendency to use rights-based approaches, constitutional rights. You had a case in the past where the constitutional right to life has been interpreted by the courts as having a constitutional right to a clean environment, at least in some courts, um, in some instances. And that has really paved the way for these rights-based approaches to be pursued. And, you know, trends like that are happening elsewhere in the world as well.
2: But how successful have a lot of these cases been?
0: Yeah. So, you know, when we look at the studies that are looking at this very question that you asked, we'll put it at about 50 to 60% of of cases that are favorable to, to climate change. Whether that success rate increases or decreases in time, that's a little bit more difficult to predict because that depends on a variety of factors. Uh, if the question was about you know, whether we're going, we're going to see climate litigation in general increase, then definitely, I definitely think so because the trends are showing that. But success, that's, that's harder to say because um, it depends on things such as how well-reasoned the arguments are. Uh, you know, whether the the number of climate litigation cases outpaces legitimate claims, for example. Um, and, and as you mentioned, where the cases are taken out and, and the uh, inclination of, of judges to rule uh, in favour of climate change action. Find us on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or via the Google Voice Assistant and Amazon Alexa-enabled devices. And now back to our podcast episode.
1: So can you share a few examples of the major cases that Client Earth has been involved in recently?
0: That case involved Client Earth taking out a lawsuit against a Polish utility company called Inea sometime in 2018. And now Inea had a resolution to approve the construction of a one gigawatt coal-fired power plant. And Client Earth as a shareholder of Inea uh, sued it on the basis that the construction of the coal-fired power plant harm the economic interests of the company because of the financial risks this project posed. Client Earth put forward factors such as the plummeting costs of renewables in comparison. It put forward the rising costs of carbon. Now, all of that raised serious questions about the economic viability of the plant and the fact that it could become a stranded asset. And so the construction of this plant as an investment uh, would essentially harm the economic interests of the company Uh, and its shareholders. Now, based on that argument uh, and and several others, um, the court eventually ruled in Client Earth's favor, and the resolution by the company to to consent to the construction of this power plant was declared invalid.
2: Now, suing companies and governments in the West uh, might be an effective way to get results. Uh, But in Asia, of course, things work a little differently. So how is Client Earth approaching its work in this region? That's a really good
0: question, David, um, and I think that's right. A- every region is going to be different, and the legal strategies we deploy need to adapt to those different contexts, even within Asia, which is such a fractured region in terms of its legal cultures and, and systems. We have to bear in mind, of course, that, that Client Earth works throughout the full life cycle of the law, and, and, and while litigation is the most prominent tool, it's certainly not the only thing at our disposal. So at a broad level, a starting point for climate in Asia is to take a more collaborative rather than oppositional approach. And, and that's really broken down into three work streams. The first is a focus on corporate and financial laws. Uh, we spoke a little bit earlier about how corporations lie at the heart of decarbonization. Uh, to add to that, Asia is home to several financial sectors and millions and millions of dollars of financed carbon emissions. So the question we ask ourselves is, how do we get corporations and financial institutions to revisit their status quo, uh, see the economic risk of climate change for what it is? Do company directors need to reevaluate evaluate their legal duties? Um, are regulations changing that are already compelling banks and financial institutions to disclose and manage their exposure to climate risks? How can we get shareholders to use their legal positions in companies to steer them in their decision-making so that the company becomes uh, more climate conscious. And then we're also looking at the energy transition, which is the second sector. And now, if you look at the advancement in innovation and technology in the energy sector, you'll find that it's, it surpasses every other high-emitting sector, such as steel, cement, aviation, in our technical ability to abate emissions. Now, if we can't reduce emissions in this critical sector, then we're in quite quite a pickle. Uh, But it does force us to think about the fact that if there may not be technological barriers, are there legal barriers we need to look into? Can energy markets be restructured so that it can facilitate the uptake of renewable energies in all these various jurisdictions? The third and final pillar is capacity building amongst legal professionals and students, you will find that there is a strong sentiment regarding the value of education. Uh, of course, we can't be responsible for all manner of, of climate education, but we can certainly support the building of capacity in its legal aspects. Now, this could mean working with judges. It could mean working with lawyers. It could mean working with prosecutors to, to better dissect a piece of climate litigation, um, to better understand the legal issues that surround climate change. We could also be working with legal clinics and universities getting them to interrogate their own theories of change. What's the change that they want to see um, in the world and and what legal strategies and pathways are open to them
2: to achieve those aims. What have the results been of client work in um, Asia? Right. So just to pick up on that last uh, stream of work, we've
0: had some really interesting legal clinic collaborations in Philippines and that collaboration is set to continue. Separately, uh, our founder, James Thornton, recently spoke about the amazing work that our our team in China is doing. China's uh, Client Earth team is still the only environmental law NGO in China. The team worked together with Supreme Court judges, designing recommendations that would change the laws that would facilitate public interest litigation in China. Uh, That's one stream. And, And another stream is to actually help train the prosecutor's in China to pursue cases. And I think that has invariably increased the, the, the corpus of, of environmental jurisprudence in the country. Uh, and now we're starting to work um, with interested parties within China to help green the, the overseas investment and trade that China undertakes um, through its Belt and Road Initiative.
1: So Sean, you did mention that climate litigation is just one tool that is being used globally in terms of advancing the energy transition. So how do you think you know more of these uh, climate-related lawsuits could work together with other kinds of measures being uh, taken by NGOs elsewhere? Um, and it's not just NGOs anymore. I mean, we've seen the private sector coming in with funding for cleaner energy. So how do you, how do you see this whole scene developing um, going forward?
0: Well, what I will say is that subject to my usual caveats that no one can predict the future. My answer to to that is that, you know, climate litigation is going to increase. um, And I think that trend is not only going to continue, but it is a trend that is going to spread across different jurisdictions and and geographical regions. Um, The laws in comparison will also get stronger as um, in tandem with, with that climate litigation. Whether it happens uh, as a result of the climate litigation or not, I mean, that's a question of of causality, which can be sometimes a little bit more difficult to pinpoint. Uh, That being said, we are already seeing a trend in which climate-related laws are becoming more widespread and and robust. And and those things combined um, ought to give companies um, good reason to start viewing climate change and the impacts it might have on its business uh, as having some serious legal consequences.
1: All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Sean, and explaining all these things to us.
0: Thanks very much, Sean. Absolutely. My pleasure. Anytime.
1: Well, that's a wrap for Green Pulse, and we hope you enjoyed our discussion. For more on climate change and the environment, do check out our stories in the Straits Times. And don't forget to subscribe to our Green Pulse podcast series on your favourite audio apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts.